Man, I'm so glad that God has you worshiping with us today. Uh, if you are our guest today, we want you to be at home and uh, feel free to slip your shoes off, make yourself comfortable. And, uh, you know, those of you joining us online, I pray that wherever you're watching from today, that God would bless you and be where you are today. Uh, I'm a little excited. I want to dive right into our text in just a moment. And uh, that worship is like a, an appetizer. But I've been in this word all week. How many of you have ever been at a meal and like the food's all on the table and you're just like sitting there. You've got your napkin around your neck and you've got your fork in hand with your knife in the other hand. You're ready to go except for you have to wait for the guest or the host or whoever it is to, you know, to sit down. You're just kind of, let's dig in, right? Let's say grace so I can get in on this meal. That's a little bit how I feel today. As we've been looking, uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Philippians 3, uh, we're going to get there in just a moment. Uh, you know, Jeremiah the prophet, he writes this. He says, when I discovered your words, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight. How many have ever found that to be true about the word of God? How many would say that the word of God is your joy and your heart's delight? I just feel all week. I'm just ready to get in. Let's get in there and eat. But before we do, I want to ask you a quick question. Uh, your house is under evacuation warning. No, it's not really. I'm just saying hypothetically. And you got 10 minutes to get in and get your stuff. And whatever you can take, you're going to take it with. What three things are you taking with you? <laughs> there we go. All right. This is, you don't have to yell it out. Tell me, what are you taking? You got a fishing rod. My wife. Your wife, okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Your kids, okay. Good. All right. No one said cat. Okay, okay. I, that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> We'll get back to that thought in a minute. Not the cat part, but the stuff we're taking. Someone asked me last week, do you really kick your dog? I don't, that's a metaphor. I don't kick the dog. Come on. Someone asked me. I'm like, going to get a bad reputation. Like, uh, the SPCA is going to be here next week. See what I have to say. Philippians 3, verse 1. Whatever happens. Everyone say, whatever happens. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Everyone say, whatever happens. Rejoice in, the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. How many know that's a pretty broad statement, right? You're going to have some opportunity. This week, when you're in your car or where you're going to, whatever you're doing at work, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, writes the Apostle Paul, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord because it's going to safeguard your faith. If you're just joining us, we're in week three of a five-week series, and we've been studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians and, uh, and to the Christian believers at a church that he had planted just about 10 years earlier, and he's writing to them these words. Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. I don't get tired of telling you these things. I do it to safeguard your faith. And so as we've been talking, Philippi is a Roman colony. Uh, it's in Greece, and it's the first church that was planted in Europe. Paul went there. He had wanted to go to Asia. We see in Acts that uh, the Lord had diverted him and taken him to Philippi. And so the book of Philippians is somewhat unique in Paul's writings. He wrote almost half the New Testament. As he's writing, he's giving a lot of correction. He's answering a lot of questions in his different letters to the churches. This letter is unique 
uniquely familiar. He has a lot of personality. You can tell he really loves and knows the people he's writing to. Uh, but there's not much rebuke or correction in here. A lot of it is just him talking about how to have joy when life is a struggle. And so that's what we've been talking about the last three weeks in this series. And so Philippians contains this theme of joy, how to maintain and foster joy when life is a struggle. Over 16 times in this short book, Paul says the words joy or rejoicing. And so the key verse is in chapter 4, verse 4, and it says this, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. So Paul, he's uh, you getting the message, right? He keeps saying it over and over and over again, how to maintain joy. Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. It's going to safeguard your faith. You know, we're always trying to keep things safe, aren't we? We're always trying to safeguard things around us. Like, how many of you came to church till you locked your car, right? Uh, who didn't lock your car? You know, keep your hands open. You got to like... <laughs> Lots of car you need to, no, I'm just kidding, right? You gotta lock your car. When you go to bed at night, you check the front door, make sure it's locked, right? If you live in Penticton, you lock your bike wherever you go. It's just a thing that we do here. You'd be amazed. That, that, it's a little bit of a culture shock, you know? I gotta, oh, I don't know. Okay, I'll tell you this. I had my bike on the hitch for 10 minutes. 10 minutes and someone was already trying to see if they could take my bike. I'm just, just telling you. A different kind of place we live in. How many of you, when you go places, you make a purchase, who buys the extended warranty? Who, where's all the extended warranty people? You're like, I gotta buy the extended warranty, right? I, don't give me three years, give me five years. Where's all the people that you're like, it's not gonna break, it's fine, right? Yeah, okay, that's, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? We are always trying to safeguard the things we value. Like we insure things. We insure our cars. We insure our homes. You might have like insurance for your trips, cancellation policy. We insure our lives and our wives, right? We just, we insure it all, right? We wear ski helmets and bike helmets. How many of those kids, we never wore ski helmets or bike helmets. But these days, you, we protect the things we value, right? And you only get one melon, so you got to look after it. Right, we safeguard the things that are important to us. And so I ask you this question, we live in wildfire country, right? And we're used to hearing of the evacuation alerts. And, and so if you were to think about your life, what are the two or three things that you would take with you? And what are the two or three things that you would leave behind and risk losing, right? No, you got, you're taking your cat, I understand. You gotta take the cat and the kids. So that leaves you one more thing that you can take, right? And, and so we think about it. Some of us, we've bought in safes or lock boxes, right? We get the waterproof, fireproof lock box. We put our documents in there, our passports, our mortgage, our life insurance policy, whatever it is, right? We, we, we safeguard the things that are indispensable and valuable to us. To safeguard literally means to protect someone or something from harm or damage to prevent something undesirable, and so the Apostle Paul is writing and saying, I'm telling you this to safeguard your faith. You know, from the second our kids are born, we spend the rest of our days trying to safeguard them from hurt and harm, don't we? 
Right? If you've ever taken a kid home from the hospital, you know that trip from the hospital is like the sketchiest ride ever. Like you're going so slow and they're in the back and you're looking and you're sure someone's going to cut you off or run, you know, you just are safeguarding. You can't believe they let you leave the hospital without a manual for this new uh, addition to your family, right? You're safeguarding them. When they get a little older, you teach them about things like hot stoves and running with sharp objects, right? Don't run with like objects in your mouth, right? You're trying to save safeguard them. As they get a little older, you try to safeguard them against choices and the consequences that come as a result. We safeguard the things that are valuable and have important to us to prevent damage and harm to them. And so Paul is saying, I'm doing this. I keep repeating this to you over and over to safeguard your faith. I keep saying it, and I keep saying it again. Whatever happens in life, find a way to find joy in the Lord. Last week, if you missed it, we just as a quick recap, we talked about this idea that this weird rumor that's going around that sometimes uh, misery is holy, right? We have this reputation sometimes as a church that being miserable makes you holy, but we talked about this last week. Miserable doesn't make you holy. It just makes you miserable, right? But being joyful makes you like Jesus. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When we think about Jesus himself, we think about the suffering servant, our suffering Messiah. On Isaiah 53, 3 says, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. And sometimes that's the image of Jesus that we carry the strongest. But it also says in Hebrews 1, verse 9, that God has anointed you, who's Christ, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. Jesus was more joyful than anyone. How many know that even unbelievers wanted to be around him? He was a fun to be with. Jesus is a fun guy. Jesus himself in John 15, 11, wants us to be joyful. He's telling his disciples, hey, I'm about to return to my father. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can be with me always. But take hope uh, in this present time. I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. He says, I have told you all these things so that you would be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Jesus wants you to be filled with joy. And overflowing with joy. Maintaining your joy in Jesus is key to safeguarding your faith. It's key. So Paul, he loves the Philippians. He's cautioning them. He's cautioning us today about some things that would try to detract us from our joy. Philippians 3 verse 2. He gets right into it. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil. Those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Okay, we're going there Sunday morning. Here we go. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. First off, Paul is saying the fastest way to lose your joy, to lose your confidence in your walk with Jesus is to start thinking that your walk with Jesus begins and relies on you. 
Now, as we read through Acts 15, you get more of a picture of what Paul is addressing here. And actually, he addresses this in the book of Colossians uh, specifically. Uh, but what's happening here is that the initial people that were heard the gospel of Jesus Christ were Jews. Jesus was a Jew who came to the Jews. Uh, uh, and he came to them and they put their faith in Christ. They were Jews. Any non-Jews, or what the Bible calls Gentiles, who put their faith in Christ uh, were actually uh, Gentile converts who had converted to Judaism and had adopted all its traditions and practices uh, like circumcision and all the rest. And so as Peter and Paul began preaching to people outside the Jewish world, as the gospel and good news of Jesus began to spread, people began trusting in Jesus and putting their faith in him, becoming Christians without first converting to Judaism. And so what was happening is that there was a, a pocket of these Christian Jews who were following along in Paul's uh, footsteps. You know, if, if you've ever been on the ferry or boat, you know, the seagulls are following along in the, in the wake behind the boat. And, and so we have these, these Jewish Christians following in, in, uh, in Paul's wake, and they're coming behind him with this message that in order to truly believe in Jesus, you've got to first convert to Judaism. You've got to accept and adopt all the practices and customs, including that of circumcision. So there's this pocket, and so they are called the Judaizers. And they're coming along, and, and, they, and they're saying there's this outward sign, the outward sign is that being circumcision. And so this is where the tension lies. And so Paul's first caution here is that living in legalism is the fastest way to lose your joy. He's saying, watch out for those that are trying to tell you that you gotta earn God's favor by outward practices, signs, and traditions. Thinking we're saved and that our standing with God is reliant on our actions or effort is the fastest way to lose your joy. And have you ever tried to constantly prove yourself to someone? Right? Maybe it's like, you know, a boss or a coach. You're always trying to constantly prove your worthiness. Uh, you know, if we're trying to prove our worthiness to God, you know, we've really missed the point of the gospel message, haven't we? You know, that's what legalism does. I think religion... Uh, as a whole, is trying to ask this question, what can I do to earn God's favor? Legalism takes that another step and says, what can I do to keep God's favor? But really what we're trying to say is it's not about religion or legalism. It's about this relationship where we come to this place of saying, God, there's nothing that I've ever done or will do that is deserving of your favor. It's freely given gift that I received. Ephesians 2, 8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so no one can boast about it. Paul's saying it's not about what you've done. And then he takes a moment to humble brag right here. He's like, you know, not to flex too hard on you, but he's like, you guys think you have some things to be proud of? Say, so let me list my list of accomplishments for you for just a moment. Here's my Jewish credentials in verse five. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. You know there's 12 tribes of Israel, and Benjamin was the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, and so really they had some prestige within the 12 tribes. He's saying, like, like I'm like hardcore, right? Like, I know sometimes like the Italians, they, they get, you know, what area of Italy are you from, right? The Sicilians, they're not real Italians, right? They're, you know, what area are you from, right? And he's kind of, he's like, I'm a real Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says this, I said, I was a member of the Pharisees. 
Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. He's <laughs> saying, you know, not to toot my own horn here, but, you know, I was pretty good as a Jew, if I must say so myself, right? He's like, I used to think like you did. The lineage and rule following, the zealousness, I really thought that was the key to impressing God that made me worthy in his sight. Uh, you know, and if, anything, if anyone had anything to brag about, like I did, because I followed it to the nth degree. But then he says, then I met Jesus. I met Jesus, and I understood what he's done for me. And it's changed me. And it's changed my perspective. Verse 7 says this. He said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, but rather I became righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one day or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You know the saying is that one man's junk is another man's treasure. Paul is saying here that everything I treasured has become like trash to me. So everything that I valued in light of the beauty and wonder and value of God's undeserved and unearned, freely given gift of salvation, in comparison to all of that, everything else I bragged about has faded. You know, for years I had this box of awards. You had a box of awards somewhere in your garage or in your, you know, your crawl space. I had this box of awards, uh, trophies and plaques, you know, uh, hockey tournaments that I'd been in as a kid and uh, baseball, you know, trophies, medals and ribbons from track meets, you know, and all these kind of things that I had. I uh, used to display. I used to have some shelves in my childhood bedroom where I would display all these accolades and trophies, and it was pretty cool. I looked really impressive on my shelf, and, you know, Participation Award, 1987, or <laughs> And I had all these things, and I had this shelf, and when I was 19 years old, I moved out to live with my grandma for the summer, and while I was living with her for the summer, my parents, uh, my dad's a pastor, they took a church in New Brunswick, and they said, well, now that you're out, we're leaving, and so I never left home. It's kind of like, like home left me, I don't know, right? I'm still dealing with that today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding, mom and dad, I'm thriving. But, but they said, come get your junk. Come get your stuff, right? We're moving. Whatever you want, take it with you. And I never planned to leave home. I just never had a home to go back to, I guess. I don't know. So I had this box of trophies and plaques and ribbons and medallions. And I put it all in the box and I labeled the box, Jared's keepsakes, you know, trophies, accolades, awards, whatever it said on this box. And uh, for the next 15 years, I carried that box around. Holly and I, we moved five houses, and every time we moved, we'd take the box, and we'd put it in the back of the crawl space, we'd take up some space on the shelf in the garage, wherever we were keeping our stuff, and so, you know, for 15 years, and finally, we were moving from our fifth house to our sixth house as a married couple, and I said, why am I carrying this box? 
right? Like, what is even in this box? And we looked into it, and you're like, oh, yeah, here's a trophy from when I was five years old, you know, playing hockey, right? You know, third place in the track meet, you know, whatever it was, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, why? Uh, this is junk to me, right? I don't want this anymore. And so I took a picture of it, and then we took the whole box, threw it in the dumpster, never to be seen again. Paul's talking about this. He's saying the things I used to value, the accolades and trophies that I used to prize and display, so it's become like junk to me. And it's not bad things that Paul says were keeping him from Jesus. It was good things. But he had to lose his legalism to find true salvation. Warren Wearsby says Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. See, one of the roadblocks that many people deal with today, even outside the church, as we tell them about this good news of Jesus Christ, is that they don't feel the need for Jesus. Because after all, I'm a good person. Right? After all, I haven't hurt anybody. Right? I don't feel the need for this Savior because what have I done? I'm a good person. How many of you can be sincere and still be sincerely mistaken when you're using the wrong measuring stick? Right? It's not about our goodness. It's not about our more morality. Paul says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. I become righteous through faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Paul, with all his credentials, is one of the devoutest and most deserving of the religious Jews. And that's not even to mention the sacrifice he's made as a Christian believer. We hear about him being shipwrecked for taking the gospel around the world. He's been in prison, and, and we've seen his success in planting churches all over the Middle East. He's sacrificed, and he's accomplished things as a disciple maker and as a church planter. But he still says, in comparison to all of this, this is nothing compared to what Christ has done for me and the joy and the fulfillment I get in serving him. Verse 12 says this. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things. Like, here's the humility, right? Let me flex on you for a moment. Like, here's how great I am, right? Because not to say that I've really arrived. How many of you know that you haven't arrived? Would you just say that to yourself right now? I haven't arrived. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, you haven't. I know, right? Right? <laughs> so, right? I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things or that I've already achieved and reached perfection. He says, but I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Paul says here the first way to lose your, uh, your joy and the first key to safeguarding your faith is to let go of, of legalism. It's not about keeping the rules and maintaining your life to impress God, but about falling into God's grace. Verse 13 says this, no, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and be, receive the heavenly prize for which Christ, God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. And if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. I should, just like, I should add that to every sermon I preach now. Like, let all who are mature agree with me. And if you don't, God will show you, you know, the error of your ways. I don't know. I love it here. But here he's Paul. He said, I used to focus on performance and perfection, but now I'm focused on one thing. And this one thing is letting go of the past and leaning into my future. 
How many in order to not get stuck or stagnant in your faith, you gotta keep pressing forward? You gotta keep running the race God has called you to. In order to move forward, you gotta stop looking backwards. If you wanna add me to your prayer list, uh, we've been doing some driver's training at our house this week. One of our children got their driver's learning permit, right? And so we've been doing that. She's doing fantastic, right? But one of the things you learn is that you steer where you stare, right? You steer where you stare, where you're looking, that's where you're headed, right? And so we gotta move forward. We gotta stop looking backwards. You can't keep your eyes on where you've been. You gotta keep your eyes on where you are going. There's a reason the rear view mirror is so small in relation to the windshield, right? There's a reason for that. And so your future starts when you stop living in the past. And in order to grab a hold of what God is calling you to, you gotta let go of some things that you're gripping onto about what was. For Paul, this meant past successes. You know, his life wasn't bad. He was killing it. As a Jew, I was killing it. You know, I was living up to all the expectations. And, you know, then I was even persecuting the church, but then God corrected me. Then I was killing it as a Christian. I was planning churches and making disciples all around the world. Have you ever met someone who talks constantly about their past accomplishments or achievements? Right? Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite, for any of you that like that movie. Right, back in 1982, you know, remember the game. I can remember it just like yesterday, you know. And you're like, wow, this is not awesome, you know, that you're living in the past. Here's a funny thing about when we are living in the past is we totally remember things as better than they actually were. Did you know, for those of you, some of you get really nostalgic. They actually call it the golden years, uh, the golden age thinking. Right? When you think, you know, back then, those were the golden, that was the golden years, the golden age. Do you know that researchers actually have shown that nostalgia is a form of denial? Nostalgia, see, we tend to remember things as better than they were. The golden years weren't as good as you remember them. They weren't. You, you remember the highlights, but you forget the challenges. You forget the obstacles. You forget the disappointments and the, the mundane day-to-day grind that went along with the golden years, right? So we see this all the time with churches that get stuck, and they lose their momentum, and they lose that energy of moving into the future, especially ones that have had experience success in the past, right? They get stuck because they're thinking about how good things used to be. And when we think about how good things used to be, the tendency can be sometimes to say, let's go back and do the things that worked back then. Let's go back and relive the things that were, uh, that were accomplishing what, what we needed back then instead of saying, that was amazing. Let's look forward to what God is calling us to today. Right? Instead of saying, what is God breathing fresh life into? We can get stuck. It's not just churches that are stuck in the past. Some churches get stuck and lose their momentum when they're currently uh, accomplishing success. Right? There's this sense that we've worked so hard to get to where we are. We're starting to see the fruit of our labor. We're starting to see the results. And what happens is that we can take our foot off the gas so we can begin to rest in that and say, now we've arrived. And let's just coast and enjoy this for a moment. That's what happens to churches when they start to experience success and they stop asking, where do we go from here? Right? And the current things are the ones that they begin to hold on to and to worship. Right? As a church, I'm so glad for this season that we're in. I think God is blessing us. 
that there's such a, a spirit, of, even in worship today, I just thank you, Jesus, for this incredible sense of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for the people of this church who are going out. Every week I hear testimonies of people interacting in their families, in their neighborhoods, at their workplaces. I thank you, God, for what you're doing. Thank you as we're even imagining what two services will require of us in the fall. What, what can happen if we make more room, God? What would happen if you, would you come and fill it? Would you come and bless it, Lord Jesus? But even as we're experiencing success, we've got to keep asking ourselves, what is God calling us to next? What does that look like next? Where are we going from here? Let's not ease up. You know, let's enjoy the moment. Yeah, but let's keep looking forward and saying, God, what more do you have? How many know we're never going to exhaust the blessing or the calling of Jesus, right? And so we want to keep asking. I keep saying this. We're going to be 100 years old real soon. Uh, the church, I mean, not like... Uh, <laughs> Some of us will be 100 years old real soon. But I want to roar into that next century as healthy and as, as vibrant, as full of vision and passion and zeal as we've ever been. How many know that there was a vision that people planted Bethel Church with 100 years ago, right? And they couldn't even imagine the blessing that this church would have been. They couldn't even imagine what it would look like 100 years later to still be flourishing and thriving and making inroads in our community, right? And so let's t take that same joy and zeal and say, God, what does that look like for us today? As a staff and as a lead team with the board, we're going to be talking about what is our vision, what is our strategy moving forward to keep the momentum going that God has blessed us with. How many know when you're faithful with what God has blessed you with, he's going to bless you with more, Right? So we just want to be faithful. God, how can we be faithful with this moment so that we're ready to handle what you have for us next? On a personal level, you know, the temptation can be for us to let up in our pursuit of Jesus. You know, <laughs> some of you know already I hate the statement, I've done my time, right? I've done my time. Yeah, you have, but how many know God has more for you? That doesn't mean you're like perpetually locked in a nursery working for the next 85 years. No, I'm not saying you got to keep, but there's something new for you, right? There's something new in the hospitality team and the prayer team and the evangelism team. There's something for you. There's never, we've never done my time. What next can I do? Some of you are experiencing a change of life where you're like, I'm not as mobile or energetic as I used to be. And I'm saying, that's okay. We need people who are ready to pray who are ready to mentor, who are ready just to stand and be a friendly face. How many know you've never done your time? Well, one day I don't want to stand before Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, I did my time, you know? I have to be like, that's going to be a little embarrassing when he looks at you out of the corner of your eye. You know, when people have experienced uh, tragedy or like, you know, say like addiction, right? When people have been at a level of health and then when they've hit rock bottom, Right, you can imagine what it takes to hit rock bottom in life. And what happens sometimes is when they have a bit of recovery and they kind of have hit rock bottom and there's been a bit of progress, there's been a bit of change. For some people, it's been a secret addiction. And when they have made that addiction public, there's a sense of relief that now people know what I'm dealing with. So they feel a bit of relief. Sometimes people are in addiction. They, they hit rock bottom and then there's a sense of relief as I'm getting help. But what happens is that, you know, you're not back to 
to health, what happens if you've actually just had a little bit of relief, but the tendency is the relief makes me feel like I've come a long way and that I've arrived, right? The relief, even though I'm not back to where God wants me to be, the sense of relief gives me the sense that I can stop now or I can be a little bit uh, more lenient or I can coast on my convictions or whatever it is because I feel that relief from where I have been, right? There's this sense that we can say, God, look how far I've come. Look how much I've changed. And so we stop leaning into pursuing what Jesus has for us. Paul says, I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and look forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which Christ, through, uh, God through Christ Jesus is calling us. William Barclay says, Paul is forgetting things that are behind him. That is to say, he will never glory in any of his accomplishments or use them as an excuse for relaxation. In the Christian life, there's no room for those who want to rest on their laurels. Laurels is just a fancy way of saying on your hiney, right? You can't sit down and just relax, right? We just can't, can't rest. We're not letting go. We're not, we have to let go of past successes, but also past failures too. Nothing robs you of joy or faith quite like wallowing in the shame and the self-condemnation of past failures. How many of sometimes we disqualify ourselves when Jesus hasn't? Think about Paul. He's, he gets confronted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus saying, what are you doing persecuting my church and killing my people, right? If anyone has cause for self-condemnation or shame, it's Paul. But he says, I've had some past success, but I've had some past failures too. Really missed the mark. Sorry about that, Jesus. Right? Imagine getting to heaven one day and meeting all the martyrs being like, hey, Stephen, uh, sorry about that. I got that wrong, you know? <laughs> Imagine... Psalm 103 says, God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. So we've talked about his successes. We've talked about Paul's failures, things that could have paralyzed him. But Paul went from being a Christian killer to a disciple maker. He went from being a a church persecutor to a church planter. He went from being a protester to a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we get so focused on our past weaknesses and the times we've missed our mark or fell short of the calling of God, we'll disqualify ourselves when Jesus hasn't. Jesus hasn't disqualified you or me. Talking about failure, the great theologian, Michael Jordan. No, he's not a theologian. (laughs) He's a basketball player. The best of all time, in my opinion. Better than LeBron, in my opinion. Someone else is saying no. I disagree. LeBron, are you a LeBron fan? Okay. <laughs> Listen, Michael says this. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Because for all those times he failed and missed, so many more times he met his goal. How many know there's no failed seasons, only learning opportunities in life? There's no failed seasons. Even the seasons of sin and darkness in your life where you failed has added to your life experience that God wants to help use for you to use overcome or help others overcome future experiences. There's no failed seasons. God, what have I learned in this season that's going to be faith and courage for the next Sometimes it means letting go of past 
hurts. You know, sometimes we get so consumed with the disappointments of what happened or what didn't happen that something that could have just hurt you for a moment ends up hurting you for a lifetime, right? I know healing and wholeness is something that Jesus wants to bring to each and every one of us. And even though it's hard, even though it hurts sometimes, and sometimes just being in the presence of God, he wants to bring healing to those hurts. Don't get stuck in what did or didn't happen, but focus on what Jesus is calling you to do now. Forgetting the imperfections, the past mistakes and regrets of life, run towards God's calling voice and his perfect future. You know, everyone loves an underdog story, don't they? They love the comeback kid. They love the person who has been counted out, but they won't accept defeat as an option, right? The person who gets knocked down but keeps getting up again. I want you to take a look at this clip. This is a clip of Heather Dormadin. Heather is going to run the women's 600-meter NCAA final. And uh, in this race, she's favored to win this race. Check it out. inspired 